better get going here. Let's uh, open up in prayer as we finish our series in Colossians this morning. So, all right, Lord Jesus, we uh, we thank you for this opportunity we have to come before you to study your Word together, for the freedom we have in this country to do so. Lord, help us not uh, not take that for granted. Help us to to value this time that we have together. Lord, pray that your word would be spoken in truth and that you would change us this morning, that you would work through the power of your word. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right, turn with me, if you will, to Colossians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 2 through 18 this morning. So we're looking at really the whole of chapter 4 because it's not very long. And honestly... As, uh, as this series has gone on in Colossians, I have been thinking in the back of my mind very carefully about what I'm going to do with this passage here that we have in Colossians. Because uh, if, you'll, if you've ever read Colossians, and if you've been reading ahead, or if you look at our passage today, the large majority of it is Paul listing a whole bunch of uh, first century Christians, a whole bunch of names of people, and saying brief things about them. And uh, it's, I found that as I was reading it, it's kind of like, kind of like preaching on a genealogy in the Old Testament. You know, in, in the Old Testament, you have this person, you know, begat this person and lived so many years, and this person begat this person and lived so many years, and so on. And sometimes, unless you really know those people, unless you really understand who the people are and the significance and everything, it can be uh, hard to figure out why that's in the Bible, like why we need to know this and, and what benefit it can be for us. Now, there, all the scripture has a benefit, right? We just need to put the work into it. And so that's kind of what I had to do this week, is I had to put the work into understanding each of these 10 people that Paul is listing here at the end of Colossians. And I think that there's a lot that we can learn as God's people from uh, what the Spirit inspired Paul to write in this letter. So I'm going to read for us here our text, Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 18. And this is God's word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are, and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Eustace, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. 
and see that, all, that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. And you can see, as I read that text, there's a lot of names in that text, isn't there? There's a lot of people, a lot of things going on. And and if we, you know, if we're following our read through the Bible in a year plan or something, and we're trying to read our chapters, most of us probably, including myself, won't generally stop and try to think carefully about who these people are and why Paul is bringing them up, right? That's what we're going to try to do this morning. That's what I want to do. I want to help you understand who these people are and uh, why why we should care what Paul is writing here. But before we talk about all these people, just very quickly, I want to cover verses 2 through 6, where Paul is addressing a couple of things. Firstly, he's addressing prayer. And secondly, he's addressing um, how we interact as Christians with what Paul calls outsiders. And what he means by outsiders, I think, is, is unbelievers, uh, non-Christians. Right? So we're going to look at those two things first, and then we'll get into these ten people that Paul's talking about. So firstly, verse 2, prayer. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us that God may open uh, to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison, that I might make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Paul here, I think, is giving uh, four, four pieces of advice for us on prayer. Four pieces of advice for us on prayer. He says, first of all, continue steadfastly in prayer. Continue steadfastly. You know, Paul doesn't say pray once a month. Right? Paul doesn't say pray once a week in church. Paul says pray and continue praying steadfastly. That means we need to be praying a lot as God's people. Right? Doesn't the scripture say pray without ceasing? Now, I know this is hard for me, and I assume it's probably hard for a lot of you. I find it difficult to slow down in my life and to find time for the Word and for prayer. Now, I'm sure this is the case with you as it is for me. I'm very busy, right? I'm, I'm in seminary. You know, I'm a t- teaching assistant at the seminary. I have my responsibilities here. I've got a lot of stuff that I'm doing in the week, a lot of assignments to get done and, and lessons to prepare and all these kinds of things. It, it's very busy. And I've had to work really hard to build into my schedule. What's that? Yeah, Jordan's busy too. We're all busy, right? Everybody's busy. But I found it very difficult to work into my schedule time for the word and prayer. And I've had to do that very intentionally. I've had to, to build that into my daily calendar to make sure that I leave time for God and not just time for my assignments. And uh, I found it to be a great blessing. You know, I've, I've worked into my schedule an hour a day for scripture and prayer. And that's no, not working on assignments, not working on um, preparing lessons. That's just purely for my own edification. And i got to tell you, as my own testimony of that, that has been amazing. It is so fulfilling, spiritually nourishing 
to spend that time in the Word and prayer. And, and I'm trying to do what Paul says here. And I'm not saying that I'm doing it perfect. I'm not saying I couldn't do it better. I'm not saying that that's what you have to do. Right? I'm just saying what we need to do is we need to think about what Paul's saying here. Continue steadfastly in prayer and figure out how we incorporate that into our lives as God's people. Because this is what he calls us to do. Continue steadfastly. Do it every day. And then he says being watchful in it with thanksgiving. That's the second thing. So we continue steadfastly in prayer, and we're watchful. I read last fall for one of my classes a book on watchfulness. I didn't even, I'd never even thought about this before, but you know, the Puritans put a heavy emphasis on the spiritual discipline of watchfulness because the scripture all over the place talks about watchfulness. And uh, what this book defined biblical watchfulness as is paying attention to the temptations that come upon us from the devil, the world, and our own flesh, and paying attention to the works that God has ordained before the foundation of the world that we should walk in them. That's from Ephesians 2. That is, we watch out for temptation, and we watch for opportunities to serve God to his glory. That's watchfulness. And Paul's talking about here watchfulness in prayer with thanksgiving. That is, when we pray, when we continue in this steadfast discipline of praying to our Heavenly Father, that we are praying that he would not lead us into temptation, that he would deliver us from that evil and that temptation, and that he would open our eyes to ways that we can serve him as his people in a joyful response to the free grace and forgiveness that he has given us in the gospel. That's watchfulness in prayer with thanksgiving. So that's his second thing. Thirdly, he says, at the same time, pray also for us that God may open a door to deliver the mystery of Christ. In other words, Paul says, pray that God would give, not just Paul, but by extension, all Christians, opportunities to share the gospel with people. We should pray for that. We shouldn't just pray that Pastor Adam would have opportunities to share the gospel with people or that the elders would have opportunities to share the gospel with people or anything like that. We should pray that each and every one of us has those opportunities. And we should prepare for those opportunities. We should prepare to give an answer for the hope that's within us, as Peter says in 1 Peter. Um, This is something that, that I've only recently begun to pray about, that God would give me opportunities. And particularly... Um, I've been praying for opportunities to share uh, the gospel with uh, Muslims. And that's because I had a winter course in Islam. And I studied Islam carefully. I read the Quran. I read many books on Islam. And I found that they need the gospel. Not that I didn't know that before, but it, it became real in a way that it hadn't before. And so two days ago, a couple of my classmates and I, we went to a mosque over in Madison and we uh, attended, not, but not participated in the worship there as we watched them bow and the, the Quran was recited in Arabic and all this was going on. And we spent an hour and a half with the imam, which is basically the pastor there, and then some of the elders, the Islamic elders afterwards, and we discussed Christianity and Islam with them. And I'm, I'm hoping to continue that, to continue to go there with my friend and to... May perhaps open doors for the gospel and, and see some of this that I'm praying for come to fruition. So I'm not just praying for things, but I'm trying to get out there and do it. Now, again, 
please do not hear me saying that I'm doing this perfectly or that I'm some kind of perfect model and I've got this figured out. I'm just trying to do what God's telling me to do. I'm just trying to live out the scripture. All right. So this is what Paul's saying. Pray also that we might have doors open for the word to declare the mystery of Christ to unbelievers. And then lastly in verse 4, this thing about prayer is he says, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. That is, that he may make the message of the gospel clear to people. That's important. Any preacher, any teacher knows that after you get done preaching, after you get done teaching a lesson, and someone comes up to you and says, you know, what you said was unclear. I didn't quite understand what you were getting at. If I'm a preacher and someone says that to me, I'm like, oof, well, I failed tonight. Because it's one thing if somebody says, I understand what you said. It was very clear. I just don't agree with it. Oh, okay, that's fine. But if you say, I didn't even understand what you said, boy, I failed as a communicator. And what Paul's saying is, pray for me that I may make the gospel clear to people. Now, they may reject it. They may refuse it. And that's because of the depravity of their hearts. We should expect people to refuse to believe the gospel, that it would be foolishness and folly to them. But we must strive and we must pray that our presentation of the gospel, when we present it to people, would be as clear and articulate as we possibly can. Because that is excellence before God. That is what we should strive to do. So that's what Paul is praying for. Those are his four things on prayer that we are steadfast in it, that we are watchful in it, that we would pray for opportunities to share the gospel with people, and that we would strive to make our presentation of the gospel clear. All right, so that's, that's Paul's word on prayer. Then secondly, he talks about dealing with outsiders. And I had this, these verses here, because I was studying these verses this week and I went to the mosque this week, I was thinking carefully about these verses as I was even in the mosque, having discussions with the imam and the, the elders or whatever they're called there. Here's what Paul says about dealing with outsiders. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders, making the best use of time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. First thing, walk in wisdom. You've heard the definition of wisdom before, I, I imagine. Right, wisdom would be the right application of knowledge. Right? The right application of knowledge. Because we can talk about knowledge. I can spew off all kinds of facts about the Bible or church history or philosophy or theology or all these different things. But if I don't have wisdom on how to apply these things, well, then I don't have wisdom. If I don't have the ability to apply it, I don't have wisdom. <clears throat> and so Paul here is calling us to have wisdom towards outsiders. That is, we need to know as we speak with non-Christians what we ought to say, what we ought not to say. You know, Jude talks about this. You remember I preached on this uh, in, I think it was December, how Jude gave a kind of, um, a kind of lesson towards the end of his epistle on evangelism and, and the various kinds of unbelievers that there are. Some people need to have a fire and brimstone message in order to come to Christ. They need to be hit over the head with the law. Some people, however, don't need that. Some people need to be hit with the grace of Christ. Some people need a more gentle approach to the gospel, a more steady and slow presentation over a long period of time. 
And this, this calls for wisdom, Jude says, to figure out what one believer needs and what another unbeliever needs, how we ought to approach them. We have to think carefully about that. And when I was at the mosque and, and having these um, uh, debates, for lack of a better word, with the imam and with the Islamic elders about Christianity and Islam and the Bible and Jesus as God and the need for atonement and all these kinds of things, it was very clear to me that they were not going to accept any arguments from Christianity without a pre-established relationship where we could do this over a long period of time. Because they saw me, quite frankly, as an opportunity to convert someone to Islam. So they were not going to listen at all. And so I kind of figured, I'm like, okay, I think wisdom is requiring this to be more of a drawn-out kind of thing, more of a drawn-out relationship over a period of time. So that's, that's the application of wisdom. That's the kind of thing that we need to be thinking about. Walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Second thing, making the best use of time. Let's not waste their time. Let's make the best use of it. Let's know, does it need to be in a short period of time? Does it need to be in a long period of time? Do we need to have a long relationship? Or do we need to to call them to repentance right now? You know, these kinds of things. It varies depending on the situation, the person, the relationship, all kinds of things. But we just need to think carefully about this. Verse 6 well, the uh, third thing he says, let your speech be gracious, seasoned with salt. Always, we want to be respectful when we're dealing with unbelievers. We want to try to listen to them, understand them, not use harsh language with them. Be patient with them. Let our speech be gracious and seasoned with salt. And then, finally so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Paul's calling for patience and respect when we deal with unbelievers, so that we know how to answer them rightly, so that we don't needlessly offend them with our answers, so that we understand their thoughts, their worldview, their understanding of the terms that we're using, so that we can be most effective with them. When I, was, when I was talking with the, um, the imam and the elders at the mosque two days ago, it was very clear, quite frankly, they, they were not interested at all in what I had to say, at least at that point. They were very harsh in their critique of Christianity. They were very harsh in their critique of the things that we were talking about. And it was very clear, <laughs> they were not gracious and seasoned with salt. They weren't respectable. And that, quite frankly, turned me off to what they had to say. Now, putting that in our shoes, flipping it vice versa, this is how we Christians need to be careful about how we present the gospel to people. We don't want to needlessly offend. Now, the gospel will always offend. Anytime you're telling people they need Jesus, they will be offended. But that's a needed offense. We'll let the word of God be the offense. But we don't want our presentation and our inability to try to understand them and respect their worldview and answer their questions to be the offense. We want the gospel to be the offense, not our presentation. Okay. So that's, that's Paul's advice on dealing with unbelievers. And I encourage you, go back and read this and think carefully about what he's saying and how you can apply this to your own unique 
situations. I know not everyone after this lesson is going to want to go rush to a mosque and go try to evangelize people, right? I suspect no one really will, all right? But we should be praying, like Paul said, for the opportunity to share the gospel with people and then think carefully about how we're going to do that. All right, that's the introduction to today's Sunday School lesson. Now we get to the meat here. Here we go. These are the, not that that's other stuff, wasn't meaty, but um, what we want to deal with now is the people that Paul's bringing up because Paul's shifting gears now. He's bringing his epistle to a close, bringing it to an end, and with that, bringing our whole series in Colossians to an end this morning. And as Paul does, say in Romans or in other epistles, he's ending with a bunch of greetings from other Christians. He names specific people and tells his recipients about those people. And what I want to do is I want to walk through each of these people because it can seem like these people don't really have anything to do with us and you know who cares, why should we care who these people are and what they're doing. Well, I think that Paul, in bringing these people up, is trying to show the Colossians examples of real Christ followers who they ought to emulate or who ought to inspire them. People whom the Holy Spirit has used in various ways. We'll see each of these examples has a different story and a different sort of lesson to teach. Now, the Holy Spirit has used these people and how we as Christians ought to seek to emulate what they're doing. All right? So that's what I think is going on here. I could be wrong. Robert may disagree with me, but we'll find out as we keep going along here what, uh, what these people are. All right, so firstly, verse 7. There are ten people. Verse 7, Tychius will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. So we've got our first guy here, Tychius, number one in the list. Now, Tychius, one thing you got to know is that these people here that show up in this passage, almost all of them, I think with the exception of one, show up in other places in Scripture. Now, this is not the only place they're mentioned. Particularly, they show up a lot in the book of Acts. And Tychius is a perfect example of that. In Acts, we read about Tychius very briefly. Uh, Tychius was a native of Asia Minor. So he's from the area in which the gospel is first being introduced to the world. He's in the, the Israeli sort of area. And um, <clears throat> he became a member of Paul's missionary team in Acts chapter 20, verse 4. And he's listed specifically. He traveled with Paul on Paul's missionary journeys, planting churches around the Mediterranean Sea. I mean, he was helping Paul a lot. So early Christians were familiar with who this guy was. All right, he was a faithful brother with Christ. And what's interesting is Paul here in this verse is saying that he has sent Tychius to bring this epistle to the Colossians. Tychius was, if you will, sort of the the mail carrier who brought the Colossians this letter. And um, he was accompanied with one submiss, and we'll talk about it in a second. But Tychius also didn't just bring the Colossians this letter. Tychius was also the, the mail carrier for the letter to the Ephesians. And he was also the letter carrier for the letter to Philemon, which are also both uh, letters in the New Testament, of course. So Tychius, he was a very close associate of Paul. Paul trusted him to bring inspired scripture to the churches in 
the first century. All right, so this is a major guy that we're looking at here, very important um, guy in, in Scripture. Uh, what does Paul say about him? Um, he is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord, and he is an encourager. I think as Paul is beginning to treat these ten people that he's listing, he first of all starts with just a general characteristic of what Christians ought to be, what the Colossians ought to be. That is simply a faithful Christian who brings the word of God to people, who faithfully ministers, and who is a fellow servant. Tychius is kind of the general example of what a Christian ought to be. The general example. And with Tychius comes a guy named Onesimus. Now, Tychius is sort of the general Christian. But as you continue through these ten people, or the, the, the subsequent nine, what you find out is each one of them is, is a Christian, but they're all a little bit different in how they're Christians. They're all a little bit different. Onesimus, the next guy that Paul brings up, is our second guy. Onesimus. Here's what he says about Onesimus. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. So along with Tychius, the guy who is bringing this epistle to the Colossians, Onesimus is accompanying him. And Onesimus, too, is in other places in Scripture. Particularly, he's in the epistle to Philemon. I don't know how familiar you are with Philemon, but actually a huge chunk of Philemon is devoted to talking about Onesimus. And Onesimus happens to be the servant of Philemon. Philemon was a wealthy Christian individual in the first century whom Paul is writing to. And Philemon had servants. And Onesimus was one of the servants. And Onesimus was converted to Christ under you know, the, the gospel influence that Philemon you know, undoubtedly had upon him. So Onesimus is the servant of Philemon. You can read about this in Philemon verses 10 through 16. I was going to read it, but we don't have time to go through that. Anyway, Paul says something about Onesimus that, again, highlights another aspect of Christianity for the Colossians. Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. Now, what does that mean? Well... I'll tell you. I'm glad you asked. Let me let me tell you. So Onesimus is a Greek. Uh, he's a Gentile. And we can tell that by his name. His name itself is a Greek name. And so what Paul is saying when he says Onesimus is one of you, he's saying to the Colossians, hey, you Colossians, you all are you all are Gentiles. Or by and large, you guys are Gentiles. Colossae was a Gentile, Romans, Greek city. All right? It, it wasn't a Jewish community. And so Onesimus is a Greek, and Paul says, hey, Onesimus, this great Christian, this fellow believer, is a Greek. He's a Gentile. He's one of you. You have to remember, in the first century, there was this huge debate going on about the exact relationship between Jews and Gentiles under Christ. Because you remember, the Jews, they were God's chosen people all throughout the Old Testament. Salvation was sort of within this own Israel theocracy among the believers there. And when Christ comes, he abolishes the distinction between Jew and Gentile and says, no, the gospel is going out to all the nations. And so then, 
the Christians who were Greeks, Gentiles, and the Christians who were Jews were thinking, okay, uh, the the boundaries are removed. Now we have to sort of try to figure out how we're all going to come together and be one. And some some Jews were saying, no, no, Christ is only for the Jews. And some of the Greeks were saying, no, no, there's no distinction. This is why Paul makes such a big deal about this. He says there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile, or male or female, or uh, slave or free, or all these different distinctions. Under Christ in salvation, we are all equal. We are all equal under Christ in salvation. And so, here Paul is just emphasizing that. He's saying, once in this, he's a Greek just like you, and he's a fellow servant, a fellow Christian who is serving the Lord Jesus. You Gentiles don't have to fear that you're second rate in the kingdom of God. Onesimus, this great man who is delivering Holy Scripture to you, is one of you. And that's good news for all of us, that the Gentiles are not second rate in the kingdom, isn't it? Because unless you're Israeli, right, we are all Gentiles in this room. All right, so that's Onesimus emphasizing the Gentileness of the kingdom of God, that they are one in Christ. And now we get to the third guy here, Aristarchus. Aristarchus. And Paul, very briefly, just says, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Very simple, very straightforward. Uh, Aristarchus is mentioned in the book of Acts in chapter 27 and in chapter 20. He also accompanied Paul on many missionary journeys, planted a lot of churches with Paul. So again, Aristarchus is another guy that would be well known in early Christian community. And Aristarchus, Paul says, is my fellow prisoner. Now, if you remember from our introduction to Colossians, which was now, well, it was like 14 weeks ago or 15 weeks ago or something. So if you don't remember, that's fine. But in the introduction, I had said that Colossians, this epistle was written while Paul was in prison. Uh, He's in prison toward the end of his life right now. And uh, he's writing this in the jail bars. And until now, we didn't know that Paul wasn't the only one in prison. Because here he says Aristarchus is his fellow prisoner. That is, Aristarchus, in addition to Paul, has been arrested for promoting Christianity and has been thrown in prison with Paul, and they are both in chains. Now, what do you think Paul's trying to emphasize here by mentioning Aristarchus? Well, he's saying, guys, listen. Listen, Colossians. This Christianity thing isn't all fun and games. Guess what? You may be persecuted. Guess what? You may actually be thrown in prison for being a Christian. Aristarchus, my fellow brother, this guy who has come with me, planting churches all around the Roman world, has now landed in prison with me. We are both chained up together in this cell. This could happen to you. Are you ready? Are you ready for this persecution? Are you ready to be thrown in prison for Christ? Be like Aristarchus, who was willing to do that. That's the example that's being described here of a real Christian who did so much for Christ and has now ended up in prison. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. Next person, Mark. Mark, 
Um, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. So Aristarchus and Mark both greet the Colossian Christians. Now, who's this Mark guy? Well, I'm glad you asked again. I'll tell you. John Mark is his name. He shows up in Acts uh, 15, I think. Yeah, Acts 15, the end of Acts 15, right after the Jerusalem Council, the great debate about whether circumcision is required under the new covenant. <clears throat> and uh, you, if you remember from Acts, if you've read it recently, or if you're familiar with the narrative, at the end of Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas part ways. They have a kind of a fight, and they part ways. And the fight is over this guy named John Mark. Because John Mark had gone on a missionary journey with Paul and then had abandoned Paul at some point in the journey because he had basically chickened out and he left. And Paul was concerned about John Mark's spiritual state. He's like, hey, I can't have missionaries coming with me and then a jumping ship. I need to be able to count on these guys. And so Barnabas was saying, no, we need to forgive him. We need to take him back. And Paul's saying, no, we can't. We need to leave him off and continue on our way. And... Paul and Barnabas couldn't solve the issue, so they parted ways, and that's where Paul and Silas came together and continued on the later missionary journeys. Well, here in Colossians, so this is much later. This is much later in Paul's ministry. And here in Colossians, Paul seems to have a much more favorable attitude toward John Mark. He says, hey, Colossians, Mark, John Mark greets you. Cousin of Barnabas, emphasizing who he is. <clears throat> And you've been instructed by you've been instructed about this guy. You have been told about what happened to him early in his ministry. You've been told that he jumped ship at one point, that he got scared. But if he comes to you now, welcome him. Why? Well, because presumably, I don't, I'm reading between the lines here, but presumably, John Mark repented of what he did, and Paul recognized the sincere change in John Mark's heart and welcomed him back into the fold of the Christian church for ministry. He saw the change in John Mark and brought him back. Well, what does this illustrate for the Colossian Christians? It seems to illustrate a kind of forgiveness that is real in the Christian life, a kind of, a kind of reconciliation that can happen kind of forgiveness for those who have wronged us. John Mark wronged Paul, abandoned him, broke his word. And for that, Paul said, no, I won't take him on a missionary journey again. But apparently, much later in his life, Paul says, hey, listen, welcome him back. He's repented. And he's telling the Colossians here, Paul is, he's saying, hey, this is an example of Christian love, of welcoming back into the fold those who have committed sin. We need to be willing to do that. We need to be willing to, to see repentant hearts and welcome them back. Verse 11, next guy. And Jesus, who is called Eustace. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Here we have Eustace. <clears throat> Jesus would be his, his sort of Hebrew or Aramaic name, and then his Greek and Latin name would be Eustace. 
And so that's why you got the two names there. <clears throat> now, Eustace doesn't show up anywhere else in Scripture. Eustace is not anywhere else in Scripture, but Eustace does show up here, and we learn one thing about him from Paul, and that is that he is a, uh, what did he say exactly? A man of the circumcision. A man of the circumcision. Now, that's a phrase that indicates that someone is a Jew. It indicates someone's a Jew. So Eustace here, or Jesus, as his Hebrew name is, he's a Jew. And he's a faithful brother again, Paul says. That he's been a comfort to him. What's Paul doing here? Well, now he's emphasizing Christians who are Jews. So we've got Christians that are Greeks, like Aristarchus, and now we've got Christians who are Jews. All working together for the kingdom of God. See, there's no, there's no ethnic distinctions under this new covenant. God is drawing his elect from all of the nations. So that's Eustace. All right, we're getting close here. Epaphras, number six. Here we got Epaphras. Whoops, that's with an A. Verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you always, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all of the will of God. Here Paul describes someone who is who is striving in prayer, who is steadfast in prayer, like we talked about before, who is steadfast in prayer, praying for the congregation, and who is working to help them to be mature. Now, by mature there, Paul doesn't mean chronologically mature, that is, older, or being more mature in terms of, oh, now I'm not 25, I'm 30 now. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about spiritual maturity, intellectual maturity, knowledge of God maturity. Now, how do you mature someone in the knowledge of God? Well, it's fairly straightforward, right? You teach them this book. So you see who we have being described here, someone who is teaching the word of God to the people in Colossae and in Laodicea and Hierapolis and who is praying for them diligently. See who's being described here. This is what we would call a pastor, a teaching elder. Epaphras is, is being described here sort of as the pastor of Colossae. The Paul's bringing to their attention their pastor. He needs their prayers. I know it's not Pastor Appreciation Month. That's October. But I really think Pastor Appreciation Month should be Pastor Appreciation Year. And it ought to be every year. <laughs> we should always appreciate our pastor. He works hard. It is not easy for Pastor Adam to prepare two sermons and all of his lessons, right? That's a lot of work. It's a lot of work for me to prepare one lesson, all right, and then the youth, but one formal lecture lesson. Now, this is, it's not easy to do that. It's spiritually taxing. It's intellectually taxing. It's not easy to pray for the spiritual health of a congregation and to diligently work toward that, but that's what our pastor does. We ought to appreciate that. That's that's what Paul's bringing out here for the Colossians. He's, he's emphasizing their pastor Epaphras. And you remember Epaphras. He's the one who planted the church in Colossae. He's the one who brought the gospel from Ephesus 
where Paul was preaching, over to the church in Colossae, or over to Colossae, and started the church and grew it by the power of the Spirit. So Paul is telling them to remember, respect, and encourage their pastor here. All right, four more. The next two, Luke and Demos, I kind of want to treat together. So we have Luke and Demos. Now, here we have two examples. Luke is the Luke, right? He wrote the Gospel of Luke. He uh, wrote the book of Acts. So he's that Luke. He accompanied Paul on missionary journeys. And then you have this guy named Demos. Demos is mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. But he is actually the one bad example in this list of people. In, uh, at the time that Paul wrote Colossians, Demos on the outside looked like a Christian. I, Paul doesn't say exactly what he was doing, but he looked like a Christian. He looked like someone who was on the top. However, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, remember 2 Timothy was the last epistle that Paul wrote. 2 Timothy 4 verse 10, Paul says, For Demos, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. And undoubtedly, after this epistle was written, the Colossians would have heard about this because Demas was someone well-known in the church. So here we have someone who abandoned the faith later in life, later in his ministry. And Paul records that for us in inspired scripture. So Demas is actually, what he becomes is a warning. He becomes a warning to us knowing the full story. Because Demas is someone who looked like a Christian but then eventually walked away from the church. Most of us have experiences in our lives where we knew someone who looked like they were on the Christian top of the world. Maybe it was a pastor, a Sunday school teacher, a parent, you know, someone. And then they walked away from the faith. We have examples in Scripture where that happened. We have Paul warning us not to depart. These are real warnings that Paul gives to draw the elect back to God. We need to heed these warnings as his people. We need to watch this. They're real warnings. God preserves his people, and he does so using these warnings, both in the scripture and in our own lives. And so we need to watch out for the demoses in our life. All right, two more. We have Nympha. Nympha, this is actually a woman example. Nympha, she is hosting a church in Laodicea. She's opening her house to the people in Laodicea. And Paul is commending her because she has opened her house to danger. She's opened her house to danger. Uh, it was not at all legal for Christians to be worshiping Jesus Christ in their homes. That was exposing not only all the people inside to being... Um, to being arrested, but it was also exposing the owner of the house to losing their house. So this is a very, very dangerous work, and Paul's telling Christians to be brave here. We're almost done here. I've got one last guy, and that is... Oops. Archippus. Archippus. Now here's where we want to sort of draw this to a close. Verse 17, say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received from the Lord. See to it that you 
fulfill the ministry that you've received in the Lord. This is Paul's sort of ending, his overarching application for the Colossians. He's saying, listen, tell Archippus to do this, but hey, guess what? You all need to do this. Whatever ministry it is, maybe you are these guys bringing the word of God to people who don't have it. Maybe you're John Mark, where you had a rough spot at life in one point. Maybe you're Epaphras, called to pastoral ministry. Maybe you're, um, well, whatever else, fill in the blank. Maybe you're the person who hosts church in your house. I don't know. Whatever ministry it is that you are called to, fulfill that ministry. That is what you're called to. Fulfill it. And Paul here closes his epistle, and we'll close with this. Paul says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. The ministry that Paul was called to was a ministry that ended him up in chains. The ministry that Aristarchus was called to ended him up in chains. And Paul will eventually, of course, be beheaded by Emperor Nero for what he did for his ministry. We may not be called to be beheaded by the emperor, but we are called to something. And Paul says to the Colossians and to each and every one of us, fulfill the ministry that God has given each and every one of us. And with that, let's, uh, let's wrap up our series on Colossians. <clears throat> Lord Jesus, we thank you for this book, this book of Colossians that uh, teaches us so many wonderful things. Lord, the first part of this book teaches us about you. It teaches us about that you are, you are true God and true man, that you accomplished redemption for us and reconciliation and you, you nailed our sins to the cross and paid our debt. And this book shows us how to live for you, how to mortify sin, how to glorify you in response to the gospel, how to, um, how to order our families, Lord. And then you give us all these examples at the end of people that we ought to be like, Lord. Uh, help us to live out your word. And Lord, most of all, help us to live out your word in light of the gospel. Lord, we don't seek to follow you because we are saved by what we do. We know we are not, but we were saved by what you did for us on the cross and in your perfect life. Lord, please help us to have faith that is strong enough to live out the gospel in our lives and to do what you call us to do in whatever ministry that is. I pray now that you prepare us to worship and hear the preaching of your word this morning. In the holy and precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.